Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, a wonderful actor, a very talented man. Uh, Kirk Taylor is our very special guest. His latest is, is Revival, and you'll be able to see that in theaters. Uh, you know, around the country, it's a, a limited release, but uh, it's uh, it's it's getting rave reviews. Uh, thrilled to have actor Kirk Taylor with us. Kirk, how are you? Hi, Frank. Okay, I'm well, man. Yeah. Good to be with you. Well, yeah, same here. Thrilled to have you. And uh, your resume is uh, wonderful. I mean, everything from Full Metal Jacket to Death Wish Three to MacArthur Park. Uh, you have a wonderful resume. You, you just uh, you just keep adding to it. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny how, as an actor, you look back on the things that you've done, and you you you're almost surprised yourself. You said, "Oh yeah, right, Charles Bronson, Stanley Kubrick, right, Spike Lee." Like, I said, "Yeah, I did really work with these guys." Yeah, uh, that's some good roles. Ford, Francis Ford Coppola too, right? <laughs> yeah, that was a that was um that was a, one of those uh, those moments where I was actually supposed to be a special ability extra on that film. It was one of my first films. And I saw an opportunity, and so I, I, I basically tried to improvise something into the scene, and I got caught by the first ADs uh, on Cotton Club. We were shooting at the Kaufman Astoria Studios in Queens, and they had just reopened that. That was the one that goes back to like the Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin days. Yeah. Um, so they reopened it, and so <clears throat> I made a move, and they were mad. The ADs grabbed me. I said, well, this is such a special occasion. Shouldn't this be, you know, uh, for Dutch Schultz, played by James Remar, I said, shouldn't this be like a, you know, uh, champagne? And they said, listen, we don't pay you to think. We pay you to move, to clean dishes off the table when we say action. Go back to your first position. And as I was going back, I was passing Coppola. I mean, he was maybe, maybe 30, 40 feet away. But I was like, should I do this? This is crazy. You shouldn't do this. You should do this. And eventually I turn and start running toward him. And the two ADs saw me and they start running. From, they, they were on different sides. They ran from two different directions to try to cut me off before I got to him. And I got to him in time to say, Mr. Coppola, shouldn't Dutch Schultz get some champagne compliments to the house? And Coppola turned and looked at me and I was like, oh my God, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and he just stared at me for a second. And he said, this man has a creative idea. Put him in the scene. He said, "Bring out a case of champagne and the and five champagne buckets with ice." And wow. that's how I and and then I improvised. I actually improvised the lines. I, I what I said to him. I improvised into the script. I said, "Excuse me, uh, Mr. Schultz." And he was he didn't know the scene was coming. Uh, James Remar, great improviser, and he looked up. He says, "Yeah." I said, uh, "Sir, th- this is for you. Compliments of the house." He said, "Compliments of the house." And he slaps his wife. He said, you know, if you hit the ceiling with that cork, I'm going to give you 50 bucks or something like that. So <laughs> then I had improvised my first, I had my first lines in a film. I stole them right there with Francis Ford Coppola watching. So it was a, that was, that was very memorable and it gave me confidence and it happened other times. I just would always be paying attention on stage and <clears throat> watch the director and kind of watch the process closely instead of being in the background. And even on The Last Dragon, which was, um, you know, Barry Gordy, of course, from Motown. Sure. Oh, yeah. He, he, went in, he, he produced that um, uh, with Michael Schultz directing, who came off the New York stages, a wonderful director, uh, did Cooley High and uh, Car Wash and other films. And uh, I, again, was nearby and ready to go. And one of the actors who was playing my, well, the part that I got, he was playing uh, one of the show enough's bad guys. And he... Michael Schultz looked at him and they were going to start shooting that day. He said, didn't I tell you not to shave? He said, oh, oh, I, I had a commercial audition today. So he said, 
get rid of him. He said, who else can do it? And I was sitting right there. And I kind of looked up at the uh, the choreographer, and he knew I did martial arts, and I had trained as an actor. He says, Kirk can do both. He can do the martial arts and the acting. And I got hired for that. So I've had a couple of situations like that where I had sudden uh, sudden promotions, you know. Wow. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, just amazing. Uh, Kirk Taylor, by the way, is our very... A uh, very special guest. Uh, thrilled to have him. Wonderful actor, but uh, he's he's worked with some of the greats, uh, as as he mentioned, uh, Spike Lee and Coppola, and uh, and uh, Stanley Kubrick. I, Kubrick is a uh, is an amazing figure as well. Again, Frank McKay here with Kirk Taylor. Uh, and let's uh, before we go on, let's let's talk about the the latest, uh, your latest, and it, it's coming out. Uh, Revival. Is, is what it is revival yeah yeah just mm-hmm. tell us give us a little background on it and, and when is it uh, going to be uh, available for people to see it, it uh revival is a was a, the passion project of harry lennox harry lennox is on blacklist now with james spader and you've seen him in matrix man of steel a thousand things yeah. he wrote it and uh, at, at the time he wasn't even supposed to be in it they end up getting a, a major role and uh we we started shooting that like uh, back in 2013 and uh it's a it's an amazing project it's based on it's a musical and we have people like shaka khan in it who sings her butt off yeah. love shaka um i've worked with her before michelle williams from destiny's child a guy named molly music who plays the main one of the leads and it's basically like an adaptation of the book of john set to music but it's it's the quirkiest coolest um kind of avant-garde approach to it because it starts as a stage piece <clears throat> And you, you see the actor coming into the theater to play a role. He's playing the role of Jesus, right? And yeah. so as he comes in, something miraculous happens, something supernatural happens, and he's transformed back into the first century as this character. And so he's really living the actual uh, role that he's playing. And then it comes back to the stage, and then it goes back to the first century. Then it, it, it shoots into the future, into the present, and then into the future. So it's basically talking about the timelessness of the message. Of God's message about Jesus, so wow. it was a pretty extraordinary thing, and I get to play—I literally get one of the one of the great roles in that too, because I'm playing Simon Peter, who who um, was one of the fishermen who started following Jesus, and who was a rough rider. He was he was tough, um, he was impulsive, he was he, he was all in, even though very often that meant all in. His foot was in his mouth too, very often because he made a lot of mistakes. But he was someone who was committed, and of course, at the end, he he denies Christ and is restored. And so that was, in fact, that was the first scene we shot, which was almost unbelievable, because I was thinking to myself, we didn't have a lot of preparation time, a couple weeks. And I thought, well, you know, as long as we don't see, shoot scene 52, the denial scene, I'm good. I just want to get you know get, get started slowly. And they said, okay, scene 52's up first. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Wow. So, um, but it, it ended up being a, one of those rare moments. I've had two moments in my career and I work with a lot of different people on stage and every venue, uh, where you, where you watch your own work and you're not critical of yourself, but you actually feel for the character. Like I didn't see myself for a little while and I watched this guy and I watched the pain he went through and I cried for him. And then afterwards, of course I said, yeah, but that's you. Yeah, but I know it's me, but it's I see the the the, the this guy's life represented here. You know, like the the, the Peter getting another moment uh, to shine, and for us to see his soul and his struggles and his his as we all do, trying to fight to get back to what we believe, trying to fight to do what we know we should do. 
And so that's it was encapsulated in that. And I get to sing, too, because basically I had been, uh, when I trained at New York University, I trained with, I had started in musical, musicals in high school, but I trained with, like, Lee Strasberg, he was still alive, and Stella Adler, and and uh, uh, Barbara Covington, and Elaine Aiken, who were all, like, method acting uh you know, stalwarts. Yeah. They were, you know, amazing people. And I learned a lot from them. So I really didn't, I moved away from musicals because of that. Um, I wanted to focus on my craft and I'm really getting deeper with my work, et cetera. But then eventually I started getting invited back into musicals. Once they, I had established myself um, as an actor, they, they were like surprised to hear I sang. But once they heard me, they're like, oh, oh, you can really sing. I said, yeah. Okay, and so Harry gave me a song in uh, uh, with you know it's a, it's a, a three three or four of us singing it, in the, but I have my own solo sections, um, and we sing you know we I sing on the Doubting Thomas song, which is such a cool tune. Wow! So yeah, that's the, the whole thing. That's sounds... coming out. You know, it's going to be like in twenty more markets starting in January eleventh. It started in ten uh, as kind of a limited release, and they're going to expand it, and they're going to take it to Australia, and got a lot of plans for it. No, that's it's terrific. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, the uh, thank you. Uh, you know, the, it's it's uh, it, it's expected to uh, to be popular. and maybe cult following is the wrong word, especially when you're talking about religion or a faith based right. movie. But, right. but uh, it, that's it. It will. It has a built in following, and I'm sure a lot of people. I think it does travel to those markets. Uh, to to experience it, and let me remind people once again uh, of the voice that they're hearing. Uh, Kirk Taylor is a wonderful actor, and uh, the latest uh, is Revival, as as you've been hearing. Uh, but he's been in everything, all kinds of episodic television shows, to, uh, uh, major motion pictures, uh, you know, shows like Law and Order. Chicago Hope and uh, you know I, Bonfire and the Vanities. You you were in that. That's another. You know you were surrounded by legends in in that. Yeah, uh, yeah. School Days was the uh, was the Spike Lee um, movie, right? School Days. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Full Metal Jacket is memorable. You played Payback in that, right? Am I getting yeah. that right? And, yeah, that's exactly right. And and Death Wish three. Um, I it, honestly, it's a, it, just a, a a wonderful resume that you've put together and still going strong. Again, Frank McKay with Kirk Taylor. Let let me go back to the the idea of uh, you know you're studying at the actor's studio and Stella Adler and uh, Strasberg. Was he uh, was he involved when you were there, or he already passed? Did he pass already? Well, no, he was alive. It was uh, it was I I caught the last four or five years of his teaching. You know, oh. and it was actually he actually at that point had he was still at the actor's studio, but I actually trained and he has he had his own school. It's called the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. It's in New York and there's one in L.A. as well now. Um, and so, and, but Stella Adler had her own school, Stella Adler Conservatory. And so I was kind of, uh, during the college days, I was with Lee. And then after college, I went to take some of Stella's classes, her script interpretation class, which was recommended by Robert De Niro. Very, you know, wonderful class. And so I got to experience that and to grow from that. You know, when you, when you mention those names, uh, the, the legends that they've, uh, that they've touched the lives of Brando and and uh, oh, yeah. James Dean and and De Niro, I, and everyone else that was influenced by the work of those. And again, I'm a layperson. I'm not a uh, I'm not an actor, uh, but you know I appreciate actors and uh, and really they they're the ones who really put together uh, the uh, the method uh, and 
with with that, all of these other things came out, and because of the success of of Brando and Dean, I mean, it just exploded uh, out there yeah. afterwards. I, let me ask you something about uh, about uh, you mentioned you you were singing, but you stopped doing musicals because you got more into the the method. Uh, you know, uh, Brando did Guys and Dolls. Uh, was oh it, yeah, yeah. I mean, was it the type of thing that uh, that that people look down upon in uh, in uh, in the method or in Stella Adler is it would would she preach against doing um, doing musicals? It was that lower level stuff for her and serious drama is the only thing. I, what, what's no, 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 because you know even our tradition going back to Stanislavski, there were comedies like uh, uh, Turandot, I think it was with the. Uh, um, uh, Vaktangov directed, and that was a comedy, but yet they were using method work in it. So it was re- it was real emotions in it, uh, and just a, a, an ex- a different style, a different presentation of it. So they weren't against it, but I noticed that some of my friends that were working on Broadway or were doing a lot of musicals weren't able to get work. I mean, because it used to be almost like a this unspoken separation like you know you okay you do musicals okay right you're a musical actor oh you're you're like a a real serious actor and so there used to be this kind of thing that people did where it was kind of like there were two two different camps uh it's not that way anymore because as you see you know the popularity of musicals now and and uh, various things coming out that and people crossing over from music into acting and acting to music so it's it's different now but at the time i was trying to really be taken seriously as an actor. And when I got cast in, you know, I was in London doing Full Metal Jacket. Uh, no, I was doing Death Wish 3 in London. And I, uh, you know, had gotten that part with, with Bronson, and Bronson was just, I love that guy. Yeah. I mean, he was so kind. I was a young actor in my 20s. And he was so kind to me. And he called me over and he said, he, he took a picture with me and he saw his wife, Jill Ireland, walking by. And he says, Jill, Jill, come here. I want you to meet Kirk Taylor. He's playing one of the heavies. I remember it just being called a heavy by Bronson was a big deal. I was like, I'm a, yeah. I'm a heavy. I'm a heavy. And uh, when I was there, I heard that Stanley Kubrick. So this is kind of my transition to be taken more seriously as an actor, right? Death Wish did something, but then I was there finishing up Death Wish, and I heard Kubrick was still casting Full Metal Jacket, which was insane, because he had been trying to cast it, I think, for three years. So I knew it couldn't be the same film, or at least I thought. It said, no. He's still casting Full Metal Jacket. I said, holy cow. I said, I'm going to I'm gonna get an interview. I'm going to get an audition. He said, how are you going to do that? I said, watch me. And I called up on the phone. And I said, hello. I said, I'm calling from the set of Death Wish 3. We have an actor here, Kirk Taylor. And we'd love for you to meet him. He's in town for a short while longer. And we'd like to know if he can come in to see Mr. Kubrick. And they said, oh, yes, yes, that'd be, that'd be wonderful. We'll set it up. And, he, and I got an audition. And so I got on the show, I got there uh, uh, for the audition, and he wasn't there. He had his Leon Vitale, his right man, yeah, I was just man, going to ask you about Leon. I just watched a documentary on him, but go ahead. So yeah, Leon. He, he, was, he, was, he was Kubrick's right-hand guy. Yeah. And so I said, he put the camera on me and says, we're going to do like a little reading. I said, okay. I said, but can I tell, can I tell uh, Mr. Kubrick a story? Is that all right? He says, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, Mr. Kubrick... Um, there was a show and tell at this particular school, and uh, you know every week one of the students would tell about his family. And so, uh, you know, it was Little Johnny's turn. And so the teacher said, "Little Johnny, please tell us about your family." And Little Johnny said, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a brother, right, who went to Vietnam, and he got shot in the ass." And, and the teacher said, "Oh, Johnny, no, 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 no. We don't speak that way in school. Say rectum." 
wrecked him. And Johnny said, wrecked him? Should have killed him. And so I, I put that on. And Stanley loved it. He loved my my uh, uh, audition. And I'm one of like two, maybe three people he cast from thousands and thousands of tapes that he saw. That's what I was told. Leon told me. Amazing. So that was how I got. That's how I made the transition into more serious work. And then, if I wanted to do musicals, then it was then it was like a surprise. I did a tour of a Louis Jordan musical called Five Guys Named Mo. It was a Broadway tour. Came out here for three months. Went on the road for nine months. So a year total. And in that one, when I when I showed up to audition, I was like, "Oh, Kirk, the actor." And I started to sing. I did the I forget what song I did. It was Jackson Five song, I think. And they got wide eyed and said, "Oh, okay." And I got the role. So that's how I made the transition back into musicals. Wow. I just, I, honestly, I, really a, a wonderful career, a, a creative approach to the business. Kirk Taylor is the voice that you're hearing. Uh, he's an actor and, you know, his work from Full Metal Jacket and, and Magatha Park and um, uh, School Days with Spike Lee, um, The Cotton Club. Uh, just a, a resume, uh, you know, really impressive resume. Uh, and again, Frank McKay here with, with Kirk Taylor. His latest is Revival. And you'll be able to see that, and it, it just sounds terrific. And it's going to be put out in in about twenty uh, more markets uh, on on January eleventh. Do I have that right? 10th? January eleventh. Eleventh. Yeah. January eleventh. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Let's go back to Leon Vitali, and he was uh, Kubrick's everything. He was his he was his assistant. I just watched the documentary on it, and and it it's it's mind blowing. Uh, Leon is uh, was a Shakespearean trained actor i mean it, he was just he was an amazing guy and he decided that uh, he he came across a, a a genius in kubrick and and by the way a difficult oh, yeah. a difficult genius right a uh, oh absolutely somebody, i have stories yeah well uh, <laughs> somebody would argue uh control freak and uh micromanager and all of that but i mean leon was the one that he was he would delegate things to but yeah give me give me your best leon slash kubrick story i mean did you see the documentary I did not see it. I talked to Leon a couple of years ago. He's, I think he's here in LA now. He was at least when I, when I spoke to him. Um, uh, I know he had been introduced in Barry Lyndon, that film that Kubrick revolutionized. He shot by candlelight. I think he got a NASA lens, you know, at that time the film would, wasn't, wouldn't support that, but he, he got a lens that would allow him to shoot by candlelight. Wow. Pretty amazing. Oh. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but Leon, Leon, Leon actually had delivered some bad news to me. Uh, because I had gotten really the fourth lead in the film, a role, a, a role that was called Alice, which eventually turned into Eight Ball. It was played by Leon, uh, by uh, Dorian Harewood. But I had uh, Kubrick liked my audition so much that he gave me that role as a fourth lead. I'm like, I'm the fourth lead in a Stanley Kubrick film. Are you kidding me? And after I had, you know, prepared for it, I'd done research. The guy was from New Orleans, so I went down to New Orleans to. Uh, I mean, not to New Orleans, but to a restaurant where they had a, a, a resident chef who was from New Orleans and all his kitchen staff. So I did a lot of training with that. I was ready to go. Had coaches working with me. Spent all my money, you know, as we often do in between in between gigs. And but I knew I had a job. And Leon calls me. Leon said, "Kirk," he said, "Sit down." I was like, "What?" He said, "Sit down. Please sit down." And I was like, "Okay." I didn't sit down though. I stood in the middle of my apartment in Queens. He said, "Stanley's been looking over the script." And um, with lines like Jungle Bunny and Spear Chucker and Jigaboo, he just doesn't, he doesn't think you're black enough for the role. I said, what? He says, you're not dark enough for the role. And so, you know, we're going to have to pass. 
And he hung up the phone. Leon hung the phone up. And I literally, I fell down in a, a heap, literally on the floor and cried and sat up. And I was like, you know what? Not without a fight. And so I prayed my butt off and I um, made phone calls. And essentially, Leon called me back. He said, Kirk, don't misunderstand. He said, Stanley wants you in the film. And I think that's when he told me, he said, you were one of two, you know, two or three people that he, he selected from tapes. He said, but it's just that that role, it doesn't work. He says, so Stanley wants you to come in and do Sergeant Payback. And so I, 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 flew, to, I flew to London where we shot everything. And they said, Kirk, you'll be, uh, you know, it rains a lot here. So you'll be called our weather cover. Uh, it was the, one of the few indoor scenes. And um, you'd be here for two weeks. And three and a half months later, three and a half months later, Frank, it didn't rain. And this is in 1985. It didn't rain for almost four months in London. Wow. They said it's the, the longest dry spell they'd had in 25 years. It always rains and in London. It always rains. And they couldn't, they didn't shoot me. And finally, they shot our scene without rain. They finally said, we got to get him out of here. We've been paying him for three and a half, almost four months. Yeah. So, so <laughs> that was how, that was, uh, uh, Leon played a part in that. And, uh, and, you know, he, he was communicating with me from Stanley and he was, you know, sometimes when you get certain compliments, I mean, first of all, because of who gives it to you, it's meaningful, but it's hard to, you know, sometimes as an actor, it's hard performer, it's hard to really receive a lot of compliments. And I get getting compliments from, from Kubrick through Vitaly and through Matthew Modine, you know, Stanley yeah. says you have a, a rare ability to act. It's like, oh my gosh, really? Well, okay. That's amazing. Okay. That's just amazing. You know, that's a, a great thing to hear. Hey, let me let me ask you to stay right with us for a moment. We're going to sure. take a quick break. Frank McKay here. Much more importantly, a wonderful actor. Kirk Taylor is here. And again, you know his work from Full Metal Jacket and, and MacArthur Park and School Days and uh, The Cotton Club and, and all types of uh, episodic television. Just a wonderful actor. Uh, a man of faith, too. And, and we'll get into that. In a bit, the the latest coming from him is uh, revival, and you'll be able to say that uh, see that in January, uh, January 11th. It, it'll be out in theaters. Uh, Frank McKay, uh, same. We'll be right back right after this with more from Kirk Taylor. Breaking it down with Frank McKay. This is 103.9 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone back to. Breaking it down, Frank McKay here with a wonderful actor, Kirk Taylor, and his latest is uh, Revival, and you'll be able to see that on January 11th in theaters, but he's worked with everyone from Francis Ford Coppola to uh, Spike Lee to Stanley Kubrick. Um, Leon Vitale, uh, for those who don't know, is a, he's a legend himself. He was the, the assistant, a little bit of everything for Stanley Kubrick. And, uh, and, and actually, it's just an amazing documentary. And I wish I had it at my fingertips. The name of the I'll have it before one of us will look it up. Uh, but before, uh, before we go, and everyone should check it out, but I, I was fascinated by it. Uh, Leon Vitale was, uh, uh, is uh, a, a Shakespearean trained actor and is just an amazing um, uh, assistant for for Kubrick. And he basically gave up his yeah. career to be an assistant. Uh, first of all, Kirk, welcome back. And Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and second of all, yeah, Leon Vitale. I, I don't know what it is. What was your impression of Leon? I, I mean, is he is he seen as the, the eyes and ears of, uh, of Kubrick when you met him? Uh, there was a, 
a routine that used to do on Key and Peele where uh, they had a, um, Obama and then they had um, Luther, his anger translator. Yeah. And so <laughs> it seemed like Leon Vitale was Kubrick's calm, alter ego, fun, loose, uh, and he was our he was our liaison. He was the one that let us know and you know let us know what was going on, et cetera. I mean, not that Kubrick was, um, uh, well, you know what? Yeah, he was super intense, but you never knew when that was going to come. Like he'd be quiet, and in fact, I didn't even know who he, I, when I was looking for him at, on set the first day. I couldn't figure out who he was. He was just walking around with the crew. It's like, is that him? No, that's not him. Is that him? That's not Kubrick. And so I was looking around for him. So he was, Kubrick was, could be super, super intense. And I, I found out later that part of that, like the micromanaging issue, um, you know, it took him seven years, I think, to complete Full Metal Jacket. And each film was uh, that kind of layer because he, he superintended everything. He he decided which banana plants were going to be brought in and which type of palm trees they were going to use. I remember hearing him supervising which boots they were going to use. If they're going to use the authentic Vietnam boots with the green mesh, or if they're going to just use the black leather ones. And we went through that kind of stuff. So super detailed. And I got caught up in that a little bit at some point because my character, Sergeant Payback had a, well, I decided he had been in country for three, three tours, which was a little insane to me. And I was thinking, you know, this guy knows you need to be, you need to be ready at any time. And I had researched, I'd spent time with all these Vietnam vets to the point where I started having, I literally started having nightmares about Vietnam, which is crazy. So I really did get inside of it. Yeah. Um, uh, so we were doing the scene and I was in rehearsals. It was rehearsing for two months because we weren't shooting because they didn't rain. And so every day we'd rehearse, I'd bring, I had an M16 that they gave me. And so I carried it around. Um, and we finally got to shoot after all these months and we're sitting there and the scene's going good. The sea tiger scene where it's the press corps of the Marines and us spinning the war for the American public. And, uh, the gun, I had it next to me on the floor, but with the barrel coming up above the table. And after about six, seven takes, we're going to stop. And Kubrick stops and says, what, what is that? He said, what is that? A gun? Why is there a gun? It looks like a microphone. It's like, you, that's stupid. What an idiot. <laughs> and so he goes off, right? And so um, I knew that, I know how it works on set. And if you lose, if someone steals your heart on set, if they, if they take your heart, you're done. You won't be able to make any real bold moves. You won't take certain chances. It, you have to stand up for yourself to some degree. And so I walked up to him afterwards. I said, Stan, I said, do I look like an idiot to you? And he said, no, no, no. He said, uh, it wasn't your fault. He said, someone should have seen it. But the next day, Kevin Major Howard, who played Rafter Man, was in a scene. He said, Stanley, he said, can I clean a gun during this scene? He said, what do you want to do, pull a Kirk Taylor? So, <laughs> I got a reputation. Yeah. It was a compliment, but in a way, it was like saying, you're going to mess the scene up like he did. And so when we finally got to my main scene with, uh, with Matthew Modine, who played uh, Joker, and I was really... I was starting to flow and Stan said, Kirk's on a roll, reload. Excellent, Kirk, excellent. Like he was really complimenting me and the scene was going really, really well. And at the very end, after we had done, Frank, probably like 50, 60 takes of the same scene. I mean, it was, it was so many that you couldn't count them. I mean, it just, it went past 30. So it, at that point, you're just, okay, I can, I get better every take. And finally we finished. He said, that's it. That's a wrap for Kirk Taylor. Well done. Well done. And they clapped. And the first AD turned and says, does that make up for the gun? Wow. And Stanley said, yes, it does. Wow. <laughs> Just wow. 
I, just yeah. a wonderful actor. Kirk Taylor is our very special guest. Again, Kirk Taylor uh, is here with me, Frank McKay, and uh, thrilled to have him. Very talented man, a very passionate uh, actor. He's gotten his training. Uh, he got uh, a lot of his training from uh, Stella Adler and, and Lee Strasberg and the last five years of... Uh, of of Strasbourg's uh, uh, career and and uh, and as a teacher, just an amazing uh, cast of characters that you've uh, you've been surrounded by. A lot of yeah. talent there. I, I mean, wh when did you realize? When was the first time you realized you you were in the presence of, of greatness? And and was it Stella Adler? Was it before that? Did you meet De Niro before uh, before no. you went to the uh, the school? I did meet him in passing. He came to a show that we did at the Institute when I was in my second year, I think. And then I worked with him some years later as a film. It's not on my resume, but it's called Jackknife. And I, I, have, I have one flashback scene with him, Ed Harris, and this other kid. Really went well, he too, by the way. He played a Vietnam vet in that, right? He had a beard in that? Was yeah, that yeah, yeah. With Kathy, Kathy Baker, I forget her name right now, the main actress. But Ed Harris, Ed Harris is dealing with the guilt of uh, the scene that I was in where... Uh, he doesn't jump off the plane, the, the helicopter, because he's scared, and it ends up getting one of their, their third buddy killed. And so the scene, then the scene flashes forward. But I had a chance to work with De Niro on that. But um, uh, you know, I knew it's like I didn't really understand who Strasberg was because of coming out of the musical theater. At the first uh, move toward method acting wasn't my choice, really. It was the auditioner at NYU, and I came in and I sang cabaret from, you know, the cabaret musical with Joel Gray and Liza Minnelli. And uh, he said, you know, he, he basically suggested that I try to get some more depth, <laughs> something to that effect, yeah. a nice way of saying it. And I ended up with Strasbourg. And then as I started to spend time there, I was like, wow, this guy's a big deal. And as I, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in class learning about the method, Stanislavski system, and how it came to the United States with the American Lab Theater, Strasbourg, Adler, and all those folks. And I met Cheryl Crawford, Harold Clerman, all the, the the giants at that time, and I started to understand who he was. And then he would tell us stories about in class about what he had done in the film Going in Style with Art Carney and George Burns, or what he did with um, uh, uh, the director. Of, yeah, Going in Style. That's the Going in Style one where he would tell us stories about what he did as preparation and which takes he thought they would use. So we had a, a, a real window of insight into who he was and he was an extraordinary teacher and an extraordinary man. And, uh, he helped to change the, the, the face of, of movies and acting in this country. I mean, his book is called possibly uh, released after his death. It's called uh, a dream of passion. And basically that when he came up, I mean, you know, there was, there were always been great actors. He said, he said, but they weren't always, they, the, the inspiration didn't come consistently. And there are others who indicated whatever they did, and he said he'd had a dream that he could bring that kind of truth, that kind of depth to performance. And he accomplished that, you know, the bell. Yeah, just just wonderful. Again, uh, you're hearing the voice of Kirk Taylor, a wonderful actor. The name of the new movie is is Revival, and it sounds terrific. And, and for a man of faith, um, I mean, it sounds like a dream role. And, uh, and, oh, yeah. and very creative movie. Frank McKay here with Kirk Taylor. Uh, uh, let's let's talk about you know and and I, you know I could already hear uh, uh, people starting to change the dial or whatever, but uh, m maybe not. But uh, it, let's talk talk a little bit about your faith. 
Um, were you raised? Uh, were you raised a Christian? Yeah, I know you have Jewish roots in between. Uh, you know, yeah. conversations here. You were telling me about some of your your uh, uh, your forefathers or you know uh, relatives. Yeah, yeah, before. yeah. But uh, were you raised a Christian? I we we grew up kind of in a denomination. Very often, a lot of people think just because they sit in the church, they're Christians. But you know, but I was sitting in the church as a kid, and then I heard a story when I was a, a pretty young about my mother, who I could still see she had the scar behind her ear where she had had the surgery, and and she had contracted spinal meningitis when she was seven. Now, this is 1942, so you didn't live from that, especially as a sick kid who had just had surgery uh, on her ear from mastoiditis. And um, I heard the story about them calling my grandmother and telling her that my mother was going to die that day and to get to the hospital immediately if you want to see her before she dies. That's how bad it was. They get to the hospital, my grandmother, who had been praying the whole way and embarrassing my aunt, when the doctor came out, he gave her almost the worst news, not the worst, but close to, he says, Mrs. Weeks, we're so sorry. You're too late. He said, we've moved her into intensive care and she's, she's expiring right now. She was like literally gasping and, and dying in the next room. Grandmother dropped her knees, raised her arms up and said, father, in the name of Jesus, if you save my daughter Rose, I would dedicate the rest of my life to you. And, uh, Aunt Lee said that the, the nurses were running in and out of my mother's room suddenly. And then they called the doctor, and he went back in the room, and he came out shaking his head, and he said, we can't explain it. He said, but her, her brain swelling went down. Her, she, she just, she's awake. She sat up. She's not, you can go see her now. Well, we're going to have to run more tests. And my mother was instantly healed of spinal meningitis back in 1942. How old was she? She lived seven years old. Wow. Which means, of course, wow. of course, as a kid, you hear that story. What does it do? You're like, well, wait a minute. If mommy died, oh, oh my yeah. gosh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be born. So that marked my life and, and started me on a journey where I was like, you know what? If this stuff is true, I want to know. I want to know if this is true. I don't want to just do it because my parents did it. I don't want to even do it just because grandmother did it. Oh, I love her. I want to know, is this Jesus character real? And I mentioned to you that I have uh, a lot of I have Jewish roots that I found out about like, last, this year. This year, in fact, we met one of the relatives who brought all this memorabilia, he does a presentation, the Toro family, Isaac and Judah Toro, who opened the, uh, one of the, it's the oldest synagogue in the United States, and it opened in the 1700s in uh, Rhode Island. And I found that I have Jewish ancestry too. And, and as I've examined it and looked into different things, I see that, you know, this Jesus character, this Messiah character is the bridge between Christianity and Judaism uh, for those who find him. And so that was something that really, fascinated me have such a love for jewish people yeah. you know i have a lot of friends from high school that are, are still my buddies uh and uh you know we have open discussions about stuff about the faith and about the messiah i didn't even know at first that christ and messiah were the same word but just from greek and then from hebrew i said wait a minute so when we're saying jesus christ that's that means that's the same as messiah like yeshua hamashiach or, or jesus the messiah yeshua the messiah yep oh wow so that sent me on a journey. So to be able to do this film where I play, basically I play a Jewish fisherman <laughs> playing Simon Peter, right? I'm a Jewish fisherman. So it, it was, it was uh, interesting to watch his conversion from, uh, uh, and when I say conversion, I think people misunderstand that. It means that if you, if you believe in Jesus, you, you're not a Jew. No, if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. My relatives were Jews and many of them were eventually became believers in the Messiah. Right. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, that was, uh, so for me to get this role, it was 
it was mind blowing, really. Like, really? I mean, usually as an actor, you have to find ways of, of getting inside of things, like I did with Full Metal Jacket, personalizing and particularizing things and substituting stuff to try to make it, to really connect to your soul and find a, find that thing inside yourself. But in this case, this thing was like so close to me. My faith is so close that it was a, it was an agony and a delight because the, some of the scenes I had to play, like the denial scene that Harry Lennox wrote was agonizing the way he wrote it. Beautiful, but so, so painful to, to, to see uh, someone falling from their, you know, like falling from what they believe and not living up to that, which we all deal with at some time or another. And I saw the, the brokenness of Peter. I understood his pain. And so I was able to make it very, very personal. And that scene, Harry sent me a copy of it at one point and said, Kirk, he said, your work in this scene brings me to tears. And I watched it and I cried too, mm-hmm. not for myself. I had the same reaction to, um, when I did, I, I worked with the late Robin Williams in uh, 2013-14. Something about dealing with that situation, but yeah. it, um, it, it was one of those situations where um, it, it was another job that was almost delivered into my hand, right? Where you know, it, it, I got called out of the blue. I prayed, I asked God to show me if I'm still supposed to be acting because we go through those seasons where you're not working as much. And uh, the phone rang within two minutes of the of the prayer, and it was uh, an offer to come work alongside uh, Robin Williams and Mila Kunis. So I've had a lot of those kind of, you know, I heard one author call it a God wink. I've had a lot of God winks through my life where I was like, all right, this is what I'm supposed to do. Because I was willing to just move, move uh, more into musical things. I've been writing songs for 20 years and not really doing much with them. I started my publishing company, but not really focusing on music. And so... This was letting me know that I, if, if I do focus on music, you cannot leave acting. This is something that you're meant to do. And so the, this role in Revival was, again, a reminder of that for me. Oh, just a, a wonderful story. Your, your whole your whole life has been a, a, just a great story and a, a tremendous amount of work. And Kirk Taylor is the name of the actor that you're hearing. You know his work from Full Metal Jacket and uh, MacArthur Park. I keep going back to MacArthur Park. It was uh, disturbing. The Angriest Man in Brooklyn, I think, was the Robin Williams movie, right? Is that? Uh, Melissa Le- In fact, this is the second time I've worked with Melissa Leo. You, I think you had, uh, did you have uh, Roger Corman on your show? Yeah, oh point? yeah. I had Roger Corman a couple well, of times. Well, Roger Corman produced a show called Streetwalking with Melissa Leo, who won an Academy Award a few years ago, and Antonio Fargus. Huggy Bear from Starsky and yeah, Hutch, Julie right. Newmar, the Catwoman, and I played a role of a of a street hustler. Uh, and Malayo was, was the innocent girl that was being taken advantage of by her pimp. And um, so we shot that in New York, and in, uh, in I, sometime in the eighties, I think. Um, but I remember I heard that you had worked with, um, had interviewed uh, Roger Corman. You know, also uh, uh, Peter Dinklage, I think, was in that film, right? Did you work with Peter Dinklage? Peter Dinklage was in uh, Angriest Man in Brooklyn. Right. He is so funny. And, and James Earl Jones. I mean, my goodness, James Earl Jones had me in stitches. Yeah. He had me in stitches. Oh, my gosh. Because he, people, you know, know him as the voice of Darth Vader and this beautiful, big voice that he uses. But they don't know that he was a, he was a terrible stutterer in his life. Yeah. And he oh, trained himself that. not to stutter. Yeah, a terrible stutterer. And Phil Robinson, who I worked with on Angriest Man in Brooklyn, some of all fears he directed uh james o jones in um uh let's see if you build it they will come what was that with kevin costner uh, uh, field of dreams field, field of dreams 
And in Field of Dreams, he also played a stuttering guy, just like he did in a- Angriest Man in Brooklyn. He plays a stuttering character, and he does it so well. And you'll think, wow, he, he really knows that. And then you realize, that, yeah, he really knows that. He has to fight it every day not to do it. Yeah, just amazing. I, and really, you've put together a really wonderful career, and it, it's still going strong. Revival is is his latest. Kirk Taylor, once again, here with me, uh, Frank McKay. Thrilled to have him, and maybe we can get you back uh, uh, one of these days for a part two. Uh, fascinating stories, and there's so much more uh, to go. Uh, we've got about two minutes left uh, in our time uh, with Kirk Taylor. What, what, what can you leave us with? Uh, what, what haven't we covered that you think we should know about you? Well, I mean, I come from a musical family. You know, I had uh, some family members, like I had Uncle John who wrote music. And unfortunately, it, he had a lot of bad fortune with that. He wrote a tune for um, Nat King Cole that Nat loved and just didn't do. And he wrote a song called Blue Rain that was stolen by his buddy and turned into Misty. Oh, uh, the, the famous iconic song that uh, Johnny Mathis and everybody has done. And so I started writing music because of him. And so that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to doing is to... Um, get some of these songs out. You know, I've gotten stuff placed in, uh, you know, in a film here and there on stage. And so now it's coming to a point where I'm going to start to, I might even record Uncle John's song. I'm in the studio right now, but I'm thinking about re-recording his song uh, that he wrote for Nat King Cole back in 1952 that Nat loved, but he missed the meeting. And so Nat said, no, I'm not doing it anymore. But I love the tune. So I have that song. I have some of his other stuff and a hundred of my own songs. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to expanding uh, the territory into music and continuing to do film. And I'm looking to, I, I signed a couple of contracts to help executive produce a couple of films. So I'm kind of moving in different directions and putting different irons in the fire. Well, and uh, let me, uh, and, not, not to cut you off, but let me ask you about uh, revival. Uh, you said it started shooting in, in 2013. And for someone who doesn't mm-hmm. uh, make films like these type of films, um, is that unusual that it would take six years to uh, d- to develop? Uh, you know, people say that, and then you know, I think the the rest of us that aren't in that world say, "Wow, really? It takes that long?" But I, I guess there's stumbling blocks, and there's money, and there's uh, you know, yeah, budget there's problems. money stuff. Yep, we started off with a budget of like it was going to be just a, a simple, simple indie film, two hundred fifty thousand, which you can do, and it turned into five hundred thousand, and then that turned into a million, and then that turned into two million. And now it's probably, who knows, 2.5 or something like that or more. Um, so, it, it, no, it's a little unusual for it to take that long. Usually I would do a film like when I did Full Metal Jacket in 85. It was out in 87. I did School Days in 87. It was out in 88, 89. So that is a very long time. Although it's not unusual, it's not normal for it to be that long. So it was it was one of the more challenging things because you kept getting called back like it was three years later and they called me back in to reshoot a scene. I was like, are you kidding me? They called me back in years later? So it, it, was, a, it was a challenge. And, you know, there are a lot of things I learned uh, working under those kind of conditions where it was like, you know, guerrilla filmmaking, man. We, we, we made it work um, and, and came up with a product that I think, you know, I think that... Um, I heard one guy, a conductor in uh, San Francisco, he was asked about art. He says, I believe the ultimate aim of art is to honor God and to uh, refresh the human spirit. And I think that this film will is something that will not only it will honor God, and I think it will touch and refresh people and give them a fresh uh, perspective on things and possibly open up conversation about it. You know, that would be something that we would hope that people would discuss it and look into it and, and it would be a starting point for, for someone else's faith. 
Well, listen, uh, congratulations on everything. And uh, just being here is, uh, is, is a miracle in a sense. And, and your mom, thank really God, uh, your mom right. got through that as a seven-year-old. And boy, it's, uh, yeah. it would be hard to explain to, to you and, and to your mom as a seven-year-old who survived that, that there's nothing out there. There's nothing, no, no higher power. I think it would be very difficult to explain that. It would be very difficult. Yeah, yeah. it would be so hard, especially with that and other miracles we saw. And I think very often people don't see any evidence of it and people are, are really hungry for that to see lives that are really transformed and healed and touched and so you know that's why i continue to stay in this business to be a light you know to be a good influencer i've, I've been successful at times and not as successful at times but i continue to get up and to move forward and uh try to re- try to represent god represent lee strasberg and uh, uncle john as well yeah, it's not to mention Stella Adler, the greatest. Yeah. Great, great, great. Love Stella her. Adler. Uh, Frank McKay, uh, getting ready to sign off. Kirk Taylor, I want to thank you very much. And again, congratulations on all the success. Everything from Full Metal Jacket to the Cotton Club to, uh, you know, now Revival. But, I mean, School Days and, and The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. Uh, just a, a wonderful resume. You've put together a great career, and you really are a talented guy. Always thrilled to talk to somebody with uh, so much talent and so much insight. And you sound like a terrific guy. Kirk Taylor, thanks for being here. Thank you, Frank. I really appreciate bringing, being here with you and your audience. And, and I want to thank everyone for, for tuning in. Kirk Taylor, wonderful guy and a just a fantastic actor. actor, And you, you know his work from uh, Coppola and, and uh, Spike Lee and Kubrick and, and so many others. Uh, just a great career and revival will be out on January uh, January 11th. Uh, please check it out and, and look for it in your, in your theaters. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down.